Let's Connect podcast series is brought to you by Talent Talks and Life Online. Welcome. I'm Karen Cole, Editor-in-Chief of Talent Talks and Life Online. Welcome, everyone. Joining me today for part two of our series, Building Trust-Based Partnerships, is Dr. Robin Whitaker. Welcome, Robin. I'm so glad to have you with us today to continue our conversation on how we start opening up the pathways for conversations. So welcome. Great to have you back. Thank you so much, Karen. Good to be here. Fantastic. So kicking off with looking at these opening pathways, where do we begin? What are the cornerstones to communication within trust-based partnerships? Thanks, Karen. So I think there are a couple. And the thing with trust-based partnerships or trust and the creation of environments within which trust can be built and which within which relationships are attended to and there's an intention to elevate the levels of trust are that there needs to be a will and the will often comes from a time of reflection and of self-reflection and of contemplation and really stepping into what is it that I want and need and how does that come about? How does that happen? It's very interesting. I find that really there's this big conversation around trust-based, whether it's trust-based philanthropy or trust-based business or purpose-orientated business. And it's almost, it's been positioned as a debate. Do we or don't we have trust-based partnerships? My, my question would be, what the heck else do we want? How do you operate if you are not operating in a trust-based partnership? Do you want that? Who wants to be operating in an environment without trust? So if we want that, and if we spend enough time to really think through how do we want our relationships to work? How do we want our business relationships to work? How do we want our social constructs to be designed? How do I want to live in the world? And I think that's fundamentally what it comes down to. So for me, the very first of the cornerstones for building trust-based partnership is coming to a point within oneself. And it's very individual. It can be facilitated at an organizational level to really think through collectively and reflect together. How do we want to operate? But for each person, there needs to be this period of how do I want to operate? Do I want to live in trust or do I want to live in certainty and power and control and fear? So the first cornerstone, I think, is very much the decision that we want to operate in trust. I want to operate in trust. And that then leads to thinking through, so how do I go about doing that? Because it's one thing to want, and it's and then you are confronted with our world as it exists, which tends to be, as I said in the last podcast, very outcomes orientated, very driven, very externalized. And so if we have made the decision that we want to operate in trust-based environments, we then need to become quite intentional about how we create the space within which trust can grow. There are a number of things that can be done. So it's not that we just have to hope for the best. We want to live in trust and we're just going to hope for the best. We can actually put into place some structures or some conditions that allow for trust to grow. And as we mentioned before, it's a journey. 
So don't expect that you're going to put those conditions into place and next week your work environment or your partnership with your main supplier is going to, is going to be trustfilled. You are going to need to move through nascent trust and progressive building of, of the relationship so that trust becomes integral. So I often liken it to laying down a spider web. So you lay down the first strand and that's the extension of the will. And then you build on that and you build on that by repeat, continuous repetition of certain actions and certain processes over time and the creation of certain kinds of environments. So it definitely takes an intentionality and it definitely takes leadership, which can be multifocal, but it takes a coordinator to think that this is what we want and this is how we are going to go about building it. Beyond that kind of intentionality and inner awareness, the other things that really do facilitate trusting environments are being conscious of relationship before work. So just flipping that paradigm that we often have that, well, we need to do some work together, we need to collaborate on a project, we need to achieve an outcome, and therefore we are going to develop this relationship and we are going to try and make it trusting because we have to deliver an outcome. Just flip that paradigm and actually place the relationship first. So develop the relationship because that is the creative site of all potential working together. So that we think about the work we do together is for the sake of strengthening the relationship rather than the relationship we have is for the sake of delivering on the work. So that's a key sort of mental shift. What happens when you focus on relationship first is that your ability to tolerate to tolerate outcomes that are not perfect goes up because you can see those outcomes as the opportunity to further build relationship, to practice forgiveness, to practice tolerance, to support learning, to have discussion, to have reflections together. And each of these things are things that strengthen the other things that really support the development of trust are paying adequate attention to time for reflection together. So time for reflection on one's own and time for reflection together. Creating regular spaces which are just for conversation. So you mentioned a little bit earlier in another context, Karen, how important conversation is. There are a lot of existing frameworks and methodologies that assist teams to understand how important the space for conversation and thinking together is, the space for reflecting together is. Currently, and maybe post-COVID, a lot of people are talking about, oh, the loss of the water cooler. Now, the water cooler space is an unintentional, an unintentional space that happens in work environments where people have an opportunity to just be in light conversation. And there's a recognition with kind of the virtuality of our current world that we've really lost something important when we don't have those water cooler spaces or those spaces where we're sitting around having a smoke in some instances or having a cup of coffee or catching a quick bite of breakfast before we go into the office together. The loss of those spaces has impacted relationship. And so I think imagine if 
instead of those being happenstance, those spaces where we can connect, be in line, be in conversation, not for any particular purpose, but just to think together about what happened or what happened in that meeting. Imagine if we made that intentional so that we actually were creating spaces for trust, spaces that were safe and spaces that we are asking each other for thinking partnership. So that is a big thing for me. So the practice of reflective spaces together and the practice of relational and engagement techniques that are more than techniques, they're an attitude really, but we can start by using techniques. The techniques have to be accompanied by the attitude, but it's not enough to just have the attitude. We also need to create structure around this is what we expect when we are together. There are a number of these. So time to think and the time to think frameworks are powerful tools to bring to an organization and to bring to an organization's culture that support their ability to think together and to reflect together. And once more, not to reflect because we have to work together, but to reflect together because we value each other's thinking and we value each other's relationship and we are committed to having a relationship within which or an environment within which I hold space for you to think. And I respect that space. And in fact, I really drop into deep safety. Now, the irony is that the, without fail, the quality of the work coming from groups that practice those kinds of reflective spaces, it doesn't just double. It goes through the roof. But we aren't practicing those spaces solely because we want the work to improve. It might be why we start. But we practice those spaces because we want the quality of the relationships to improve and the levels of trust to improve. And the irony then is that when trust elevates, miracles happen. Actually, miracles happen. Innovation happens. Creativity happens. We, unrele we release our frontal lobes from this constant amygdalan yeah. space, the bra our brains needing to protect ourselves. When we genuinely and repeatedly come to know that when we walk into a certain space, it is safe. Something happens in that moment and huge creativity is unleashed. And when we do that collectively, collective creativity is released. Now, I don't want to make it sound as though it's a magic formula and it always feels like it doesn't. It dips, it flows. There are environments within which there are blowouts. There are environments within which things go wrong. But if we are courageous enough to come back to that reflective space, if we're courageous enough, and I do think that you can increase the capacity in an organization. So you can, through practicing this sufficiently regularly, and then through intentionally supporting others to practice in their own spaces and to practice with their own teams. You can increase the capacity within an organization to hold these kinds of spaces. But initially, when it's not present, it really takes an intentional leadership. So the space I work in, I work very much in the learning ecosystem space. So it's not actually necessarily business organizational spaces, but it is highly related. So the intentionality to continue 
holding that space is really key. In our learning ecosystem spaces, we talk about the development of a new set of roles to facilitate this kind of culture of trust being built or culture of relationality, attention to the in-betweenness of us. And we talk about roles that are present currently, but they are not, they're not championed, they're not necessarily visible, they're not articulated well, they're not necessarily valued. They just happen and they happen because we're human and we actually want this kind of connection. But these roles include things like system orchestrators or system conveners, people who really are intentional about shifting the way a, a system operates and shifting culture within a system. Then there are things like brokerage roles, space holding roles, convening roles, space holding roles, system brokers, people who really understand how to facilitate and create space. And it does require some active facilitation. It's If we really genuinely want high trust environments, we need to be intentional and we need to be consistent and we need to operate in integrity in creating those spaces. Robin, just as you're thinking, I'm just thinking around where we are within organizations at the moment and the realization that we often more often than not have really low levels of psychological safety within our teams and it's it's seen as the leader's job or role to build that trust to build that psychological safety and although there are intentional steps that they can take and become intentional about it we need to firstly acknowledge that not every leader is is even there on their own journey first of all so suddenly to now have to take charge of not only being responsible for that to develop that capacity for reflection for self-awareness for uh, vulnerability which lies core to this within themselves first and then to still it's in their charge to bring that to their teams and to do this so obviously at the first hiccup there the challenges may just seem insurmountable so I love mm -hmm. what you're saying now around this should be almost a an external facilitated role where people that have those skills that have access to the tools that are able to have the patience to allow this to emerge, that have seen those stumbling blocks that can navigate them, are brought in to facilitate this kind of relationship until the team has got it, until it's there. And then we can work on slowly maintaining that. You know, it's an interesting thing. So I, I think that one can inspire as an external consultant facilitator. I think that one can bring some early tools maybe but I think that what until that wish and that intention lands in a team, and it doesn't actually necessarily have to be like the official leader. So sometimes, as you say, sometimes isn't the person who's currently in that role isn't that kind of person, or they don't want to take that role, but they can, for instance, be aware that it needs to be created or that space needs to be created, and they could um, offer that leadership capacity, that leadership role, so the leadership role to facilitate an organization stepping into deep level or deeper, let me put deeper, or better, higher levels of trust. It doesn't have to be the CEO, but it does need to be, it needs to be a team that's committed to the well-being of that team and that is part of that team so they maybe have support in this 
But I'm just thinking about, <laughs> I'm about to do the time to think facilitation course, just because I use that work so much. So I use a lot of different modalities. That's one that I keep coming back to. And in conversation with uh, Maurice Barak, who does the time to think facilitators training in South Africa, we were discussing this phenomenon where organizations will run a time to think course and then you speak to them about it next year and they said, oh, we did that last year. Unless something lands and unless something becomes part of the heartbeat or it flows in the blood of an organization, you can bring in as many external people as you. They just bounce off the skin of the organization. There needs to be something inside an organization where there, there is a will and a commitment to shift. So it really is culture shift. But culture shift can sound very daunting, whereas this is extremely human. Actually, people want to work this way. So the responsiveness, if you create just the tiniest spaces, the responsiveness to that is enormous. But they do need to be created and they do need to be attended to. They do need to be loved and cared for. It's a fundamentally intentional process it needs to be an intentional process and it doesn't need to be a process unfortunately it also so there's a thing about tools and models and processes so tools are fantastic because they give us something practical our brains like practical things to work with and it makes us feel a bit more in control but a tool can never deliver an attitude. And the same with methods. So methods are fantastic because they allow us to have a process within which we can use those tools and they allow us to go on a journey together and we can move through that journey and we can feel contained within it. But again, it's dead unless it's infused by, by will and attitude and intention. And so what really is key is utilizing and understanding that tools and methods are fantastic. What specific tool and method is less important than the attitude and the intention that is, that is infusing through their use? And that tools and methods only gain value if they are used as part of a process. And so the patience of process is key because some processes never end. Absolutely. Some of them, so we can't treat this issue around culture shift and trust and development of trust-rich environments as a two-year project or a workshop that we're going to do next week. We need to commit to the process. And we need to commit to loving the process and understanding that the process is the point. Process is the point. I love that. And I think it's so important what you're saying right now, because as we struggle with this, are we going to be hybrid? Are we returning to work? Are we remote? How do we structure our teams? Like you were saying, do we miss the water cooler conversations? What happens to those? I think we're putting far too much emphasis on the physical aspects in that environment and not spending enough time thinking about what is the essence behind that water cooler conversation? How else can we create it? So just because the water cooler space doesn't exist anymore, the intention behind establishing spaces for those conversations can easily exist over several other mechanisms. And I think this is where leaders are struggling. What within their environments uh, can they replicate? But it's the question, why? What are we actually trying to drive towards? 
And it's such an important question as we step into this world where, where people are wanting and demanding more. We want more out of our workplaces. We want better relationships. We want to be seen as more human. And what a fabulous time for organizations and leaders to start asking these questions around how do I do that? How do I yep. lead from a very human-centric position? Yeah, and it's a conundrum because it's a real conundrum. So when you approach that, I mean, when you approach that thinking from the perspective of, oh, I have to deliver a $5 million profit at the end of this year, and my team are all demanding that they have spaces that feel more human. How can I satisfy their request for human spaces so that they help me get what I want with the $5 million profit? It's antithetical. It really does require, and this is why I started with saying, the intent and self-examination. Mm. That's where it starts. Because, and it's like, it's, extremely natural but very hard for us our minds want to slide away from that inner examination because it's it's challenging to us it challenges us to go to emotional spaces that maybe you don't feel entirely comfortable it's been required to go there in a working context before so it's yeah. new and that requires a certain level of vulnerability and trust in itself will this be embraced within a work context Absolutely. It's an interesting, can we talk about love? So can we actually talk about love in a work? So it's like what we, what can we, we say the word. Now. Absolutely. And it is an interesting thing. We've had this discussion at some level. I'm in a sort of think tank group with people from many different countries. And it's really interesting because we've spoken about how some cultures and countries and languages find it extremely easy to talk about love at work so arabic it's something that's spoken about with ease the word love is used easily some of the mediterranean languages it's like it infuses and linguistically when you're in a culture which doesn't find it easy to talk about these things that are very personal but we want to segregate our personal life from our working life like we want to schism our humanity and I think the one thing that is coming through clearly from this period when we've been shaken and we've really been forced to look death and loss and life hard in the face. And some of us have looked harder than others. But people are saying, I'm not willing to do that anymore. Split myself in half. Be something for you and hide myself. And so we're going to have to learn how to talk about love. And love is at the heart of trust. So That's when we talk about intent, is our intention, do we want to be in spaces that are generative? Do we want as leaders our spaces where there are human beings to be generative? Because if we do, we're going to have to do that hard process of talking and thinking about love and where it's going to have to start. I'm guessing with you. I have to start here in me. Absolutely. Which is in itself such a difficult, I think, hard to love externally is to express love and to feel love on the outside. It's quite 
a bit easier than learning to to love self. Absolutely. The way, so for me, it's, I think this is actually like a fundamental to the question of our human development over time. (laughs) We start, we, we actually require the process. So we require the process of our full lives and then some, and some will choose to engage with the process and some won't. But it's not like we need our 20s when love means a certain thing. We need our 30s when, you know, love me. We need disillusionment. We need a little bit of a knock. We need a, what does this actually mean to me? Mm. To be loved, to love, to trust. It's a process. Uh, So going back to as an organization, let's take the fifth discipline, okay, or any of the organizational development books. It's a really interesting exercise to take some of the things spoken about in that, in those books and to look at them through the lens of relationality. And many of those books, many organizational development books and teachings or writings that seek to support people through the phases of an organization's development will reference these fundamental underlying things. They may not reference them in these words, so these words might be uncomfortable. But if we think about building strong teams, this is going to come up. How do we communicate? How much trust is there? How much time are we making to talk about what we believe and what we are wanting to do, what we're seeking to do to seek congruence? So although it sounds quite like an alternative talking about trust and talking about care and talking about respect and thinking about the creation of spaces of for belonging we really just using a language that speaks to our personal lives but the truth is if we're going to stop schisming business lives and personal lives then we need to become comfortable with using language that can cross those bridges high functioning teams is something that feels like a very comfortable word in a business environment. Oh, we really want to create high-functioning teams. That's a real cover word because what do high-functioning teams need? High-functioning teams need spaces in which there is high trust. There's a great deal of care for each other and care is just a mm, watered-down word for love. Um, so not it's real care and respect for each other. Families challenge us most to really self-examine. I've, I've always said there are two things that matter. It's kindness and respect. And for me, those are kind of fundamental elements of love. Uh, so care, kindness, respect, and a commitment to growth, a commitment mm-hmm. to others growth and to own growth and a commitment to being able to be uncomfortable together yep Robin I think that is fantastic and I'm really sorry that we have to end there for the day because I think this conversation we could continue deep into to the night this is definitely a, a a really meaty conversation and I think so important in terms of how we actually bring and essentially when we're speaking around leaders needing more empathy and as you're saying all of the harder terms or the I suppose more palatable terms we're finding at the heart of it we're really just needing people to bring to be able to show love at work to bring that kindness aspect in with them and to that is the soft stuff that we're talking about really at the end of the day isn't it? I think we think about soft stuff and hard stuff is different actually the soft stuff is the hardest stuff. very hard stuff 
it's the hard stuff and it's the human stuff. Robin, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our time. I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much, Karen. Me too.